The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santapietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. Hello, Michelle. It really is an honor to have some time to talk with you. And it's very interesting to be talking with somebody about the pandemic as a healthcare worker, and but you're not a nurse in an, an ICU or an emergency room. I don't know if you want to just start by saying a little bit about what your role is. Sure. Hi. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a social worker. I work as a therapist in a psychiatric hospital, and I run group therapy for intensive outpatient, which is essentially a step down from inpatient hospitalization and a step up from individual therapy. So this is really interesting because, you know, you're not in private practice, you're in the healthcare system, you're dealing with patients in groups, you're dealing with a lot of patients, it's not just one coming at a time. When, for instance, did you start work, you know, you and your colleagues, when did it start dawning on you that, you know, there's this pandemic, COVID, what was that like for you? Yeah, I guess it was a couple weeks into finding out that there was a, an infection going around. We just assumed that very quickly we would be going to a telehealth platform or that we would be, you know, stopping the groups because we fit quite a few people into a small space. You know, at first we were just assuming that would happen very quickly, but the longer that it went on, we realized our hospital was not going to be doing that willingly. So in your work, your work is designed to have a bunch of people in rooms together, tightly packed. And actually it's like an all day program, right? Or several hours. We run two, so morning and afternoon, and they're three hours each. So each patient is here about three hours a day, Monday through Friday. And you said virtual. So because what you're doing as a therapist and in groups, you don't need to take blood pressure. You don't need to do a physical exam. So what you do can be done over Zoom or the video. It could, and we didn't know what that would look like. 
but we started hearing these other hospitals and other programs going to telehealth or at least planning Mm -hmm. to go that way. And that was not the discussion at at my hospital. What was that like? Because nobody really knew what anybody was doing in the beginning, but you would get a Mm -hmm. sense of what was going on by asking, like you said, what are the other people doing around us? What are the other systems Mm -hmm. doing? So you're there and you see other systems going virtual for behavioral health and you're not going virtual. What was that like? Incredibly frustrating. You know, we had the thoughts, they don't care about us. They're not worried about our safety. We tried to band together and report them. (laughs) We were infuriated. It was incredibly disheartening. It was scary. We were worried about our patients. At the time, I had several patients who were immunocompromised. So, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I essentially recommended that they stay home, even though that's not the direction I was given. So not just concerned about yourself and your colleagues, but also patients. Yes. You know, and this feeling frustrated and anxious that people are at risk and who cares about us and how did it go? I mean, were people trying to ask the leadership what's going on? Mm -hmm. What's the plan? Was there a dialogue? How did that go? We did our best to communicate with management and those above us. We let them know that we were worried and we felt like we needed to do something different, not just continue business as usual. There wasn't a lot of communication back with us about what was happening. You know, a few people, because of childcare and things like that, they were forced to take leave. So some Mm -hmm. people stopped working at that time. Mm -hmm. I became so concerned about the way that things were going that I decided, you know, I don't think I can continue working here until we decide that we're Mm going to go to telehealth because Mm -hmm. that's the safest thing to do. Mm -hmm. So it was this ongoing kind of back and forth battle. And um, there was a lot of tension between the team and management. And we really weren't being heard. We were kind of being placated. Mm -hmm. Nothing was being done. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. There's a kind of a common theme in some of these discussions that we're having with people who have decided to step forward, step up, take action. And that can be, that action could be stepping forward, you know, getting help for themselves. But it sounds like you came to a point and the common theme is that people reach a kind of limit. They feel Mm -hmm. a limit within themselves. You know, we've reached a point here where I have to do something. Is that what happened? Absolutely. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, it was scary, but really what, what happened was our concerns were not only not being addressed, we were being told you signed up for this. Right? Like you signed up to be a healthcare provider and you have to just tolerate whatever we say. So they were bypassing the fact that we were worried about patients and that, yes, we did sign up for this. And part of our job is to protect patients and protect staff so that we can be there for patients. And, you know, we treat a lot of suicidal people, people who have had suicide attempts. Mm-hmm. So they're high risk. And um, that was the point for me where I didn't feel... Like I could forgive myself if I just kept going along with it. So that is the point where I just decided. That's actually what I'm, I'm interested in asking you a little bit about that, because I think people that listen to the podcasts are some of the, you know, a lot, of, I'm sure many people are folks that they maybe 
almost got to the point where they felt the limit, but they didn't. And mm-hmm. they wonder, should I have done this? Should I have done this? Should I reached out for help, but I didn't. So why do you think you got, did you get to that point before other people? I think I got there at the same time as a couple others. So there's a few of you though. There's a, like, there were a few of us. Yeah. What's, why do you think the few of you, what's, what was it that you think that happened to the few of you that got there first? Like how, how did that happen? I think it's just the different ways that we deal with fear, to be honest. What do you mean? Those who stayed, they were so fearful that they were going to be retaliated against or lose their jobs because of standing up. And I live a pretty comfortable life. I have a big support system. I didn't have to worry about that as much. So I felt like I could take the risk and I would have the support that I needed. So I don't think there's a right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's really like we dealt with it differently. And there are a lot of people very scared that they would lose their jobs. That's very helpful. As I'm talking, it helps me understand that some part of it has to do with dealing with fear whether it's standing up like you did. And I want to hear more about that or standing up. I want to hear more later as we've heard in other podcasts about people getting help, you know, mm-hmm. um, that it, there's something about confronting fear. I think that's really helpful. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal. You stood up, you and a few people for your, your own safety, for your colleague's safety, for the patient's safety, and then how'd it go? Um, I felt good about it. <laughs> I was out for only about a week I received some communication from my management that the plan, they were working out telehealth. So I decided the next week, okay, there's this plan. We are going to go to telehealth. I decided to come back. Once I did, my leadership did not handle it very well. They essentially brought me and my whole team into a room. We frequently have team meetings. We're a very close-knit team. And she basically shamed me for taking that week off. She asked the team how I felt that I abandoned them, that I left them during this time, that they had to pick up my slack while I was gone. So we had, her and I had a big conflict that we had to work out from that, but it was horrible. I was just about to ask you, what was that like? It was really painful. This was someone who I trusted, who I actually went to bat for last year. There was another thing that Mm -hmm. happened that I had to kind of defend her. You know, it was hard because I wasn't sure who on the team had sided with her. I think I had one colleague stand up in that meeting and support me. So it was very confusing. I imagine you hadn't expected that was what was going to happen. I thought maybe she would give me pushback because she was one of the people telling me, you you signed up for this. But from the team, I I had no idea that, you know, they would just kind of stay silent Mm -hmm. for the most part. So that was really painful time. I thought about quitting. Mm -hmm. And you decided not to quit? I decided not to quit. Um, In the moment, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to find another job, Mm -hmm. knowing that there were a lot of places shutting down and Mm -hmm. people losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. So I decided to stick it out. I was able to work it out with a couple people. So that was healing, but it did, it changed the group dynamic. I was just about to ask you about that because what it struck me as I was going to use the divisive, you know, the word, um, because I I also get a sense that your team is really important to you, you know, and one of the ways to deal with crisis and get through things is by being with your team. So that was a kind of divisive fracture kind of moment, right? That was a while ago. That was, gosh, maybe back in April. 
So are, are you still part of that team? And Still on the team. How's that, how did that yes. go? Did it get healed or? We, I think we have for the most part. It's interesting. I think the team dynamic kind of mimicked the way the entire country is dealing with this. Oh, what do you mean by that? So there were some on the side of wanting to be very cautious, wanting to be very vigilant about safety. And there were others who were like, well, you know, if we get it, we get it. Or maybe this thing isn't real. You know, it's an exaggeration. So that was part of the fracture was we weren't on the same, on the same understanding (laughs) of what was happening with COVID. That's really interesting. And if you wound the clock back, even from the beginning, maybe you, you, the people that were, it was a division. I think at the very, very beginning, there was Mm. a, oh no, there's this virus. Mm. But once it started hitting our area and the country, that's when we started to see the divide. People either not worrying about it at all or really worried about it. Where is the team with respect to the divide now? I think we're all on the same understanding now. (laughs) Yes, we're pretty cautious as a team. We do a lot of communicating with each other and with management about what we think safety-wise needs to happen. So yes, we've definitely come together that way. Well, that sounds good. I mean, improved. There has been some bringing together of the divide. Yes, it took some time. It took some scares in the program. We've, you know, we've had a couple exposures, somebody sort of on our team got it. So yeah, I think the, the reality hit when it came to the hospital, that may have changed things. The other part is, you know, the farther we got away from that initial big explosion, the divide where we were deciding to go to telehealth, we've been able to work together and We've kind of healed just over time, not necessarily this big moment that changed things. Do you think that crisis moment that you and a couple of people were involved in maybe was an important part of the group dealing with it? I think so. I think it, you know, some people weren't saying anything about it and some people like me were very vocal about it and we needed to do something different. So there was a a repairing that happened within the team. How about in terms of your experience with leadership? You know, I know a number of people that are listening to the podcast are leaders, you know, that are interested Mm in how do we improve always as leaders, right? And I think some of you said the problem from your side of things was that you didn't know what was going on. Why are decisions getting made? Are we part of the equation? Has there been more or better communication? What's it been like? Yes, communication has improved over these last several months. I think the biggest change for me personally is that I have more empathy for our leadership. (laughs) You know, we all handle crises differently. So I, to be honest, I don't think they handled it well. I don't know that we as therapists handled it well either. And so there's been a lot more communication since there have been a couple people who have really been specific about what we are needing in terms of safety. Mm-hmm. We have been consistent about asking for that. And mm-hmm. so we are seeing a lot more clear and open communication with our management. And the longer this thing goes on, I think the reality is hitting everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't just a flu. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is very different. So I think that has helped in management actually being willing to communicate Mm -hmm. to us about safety. 
You know, it's interesting as a, just listening to the way you told that story, it, it almost would fit the story if you got some credit maybe for helping things move in a direction that sometimes is hard to do, but for everybody to understand, yeah, we had this crisis and it wasn't fun at the time, but we needed it. And actually to be thankful for the people that, you know, you said overcame the fear mm -hmm. to be part of a crisis basically that moved things forward. What about that? You were talked about the patients. I mean, where were they in all of this? Were they uh, in terms of their feeling safe or what was it like from their perspective? Well, um, <laughs> they kind of mimicked the team dynamic as well and the country dynamic. We had some who were extremely fearful, especially those who were immunocompromised. At the same time, I think the majority, especially our population, we treat mood disorders people with severe depression, anxiety, panic, bipolar. Mm -hmm. And those illnesses can be quite self-absorbing, you know, it's mm -hmm. just a symptom of yep. depression. So oftentimes it seems as though they're not super aware of what's happening in the world. They're really so focused on, you know, how negative, how bad they are, how doomed they are that I don't know that they're really aware of the mm -hmm. level of crisis that we're in as a country. So, mm -hmm. you know, they tend to come in and sometimes they're a little negligent about safety. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's part of the nature of our population. Did you have this phenomenon where uh, some of them didn't come in because they were afraid to come in and then things got worse and they ended up having to come in maybe in yes. crisis or something? Yeah, we eventually, after going to telehealth, we opened back up to in-person as well. So we do a hybrid. And we had several who had, their treatment was interrupted. So we stopped treatment completely. They were saying, you know, we'll come back in a couple months when this thing is over. This thing never got over. <laughs> and so they did eventually have to come back in. But luckily now we do have the telehealth option so that they can do that. But yeah, some are so severely sick that they need to come in person and it's not safe to do over telehealth. Yeah. I mean, I, as a psychiatrist work in a different system, that has been our experience as well, that some people do okay on telehealth and some people just don't and do need to come in. It's interesting yeah. that we have the same experience. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, can we switch to, because you had a really interesting story about how you ended up getting support around this. Yeah. Do you want to just say a little bit about how that uh, happened the, in, with your, I think it was your supervisor. Yes, I have a clinical supervisor. Um, I meet with her weekly. We typically discuss patients, treatment planning. We'll do role plays so that I can hone my skills as a therapist. Mm -hmm. And during this time, she was incredibly supportive to me. I was telling her, you know, at a certain point that I'm really struggling. I don't know if I can keep doing this job. I don't know how to manage this. I'm going into work with my chest tight every day and like my shoulders tensed. And so she was kind enough to offer me <laughs> the option to talk about what I needed instead of talking about patients. So I got to ask her for some advice. I got to talk to her about all of the difficulties I was having. It gave me not only an outlet, but it was almost like a therapy session because she is a therapist. There's at least two really interesting things to me about that. One is about her, that she would be able to pivot 
you know, from one aspect of the role of a supervisor in our work in behavioral health is to, like you said, work on honing your clinical skills and role playing. But the other job of a supervisor is to help care for the person that's doing the work Mm -hmm. so that she was able to pivot. But actually before that, I'm really interested about how, when you got to this moment where you were able to say, I'm struggling, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, a lot of people for every one person in my experience that during this pandemic has reached out and said that to a supervisor or a nurse supervisor, or there's like a hundred people that didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. that thought about it. So do you remember, you know, what do you think was going through your mind? Did you debate? Should I say this? Should I not to just come out? Like, how did you reach that point? I reached that point because she had a feeling and she asked me. So she asked you. She actually asked me, she's an amazing human, but she's always checking in on me, even Mm -hmm. though we do talk about patients. And I got to the point where I couldn't really focus on the treatment. I wasn't Mm -hmm. being a good therapist. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was one time she asked me, Hey, how are you doing with all of this? And I, I didn't have a choice. I had to just let her know. So that's really where that started. She checked in on me. Well, it may not have felt like a choice, but again, even when people, so even when people do check in, a lot of people's first reaction is I couldn't bring that up. You know, I, I don't trust that they really care or I want to, this is a workplace and I'm not supposed to look vulnerable, but you were able to, you know, pretty quickly right there say I'm struggling. Yeah. And I think she just created this environment for me that felt safe. I don't know that I would have done that with any other supervisor at my job. What made the environment safe? She is um, an incredibly empathic and compassionate and patient person. So all of her language, she's not a judgmental person. She's just very gentle and loving. Mm -hmm. And it's, I've had her as a supervisor for, I want to say about a year now. So throughout that year, I've learned that I can trust her. And so that's when I decided, okay, I think this is the right person. You know, I'm trying to be aware since we're both behavioral health people, not to, not to talk shop too much. And, and I'm going <laughs> to define a term because you said empathy. And that's a term we use all the time. But I think of empathy as, I don't know, how, you, how do you think of it? I mean, I think of it as um, being able to see things from another person's point of view, being interested exactly. in another person's point of view. Is that how you think of it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Being willing to, willing to, willing to, you know, step outside of yourself and your perspective and, you know, your background. Yeah. Willing to take a step. I mean, it's helpful to break it down. I, at least for me, as I'm thinking through it, through these podcasts, because I'm very interested in when these moments go this way or they go the other way. And now Mm -hmm. you've made me think it's not just the person that reaches out. It's also the person they reach out to. Yes creating an environment and even some of it, you don't have to be a therapist. I mean, to be curious, you know, to be interested. Right. And like you said, to take that step. Also, it shows how powerful that question is. I don't know how she asked you it, but like, are you okay? I mean, do you remember what she actually said? I think she said something like, you know, how are you doing with all of this right now? I can't imagine it's been easy. That's a powerful moment. She turned, you know, she turned the, she did. And I, I did a lot of work myself, but I give her a lot of credit for giving me some tools to actually stay in my job, <laughs> you know, cause I was ready to, to quit at that point. Right. So that was another part of you staying in the role. And you had also said something I remember about 
and I won't get it right. So I'll ask you to describe it, but about like, you know, sort of turning the table yourself, like, you know, you know how to do therapy and counseling mm-hmm. with other people, but you, something happened where you, you saw yourself in a different way using those skills or how did that happen? Yeah. So as I was um, meeting with her and talking to her weekly, she has a lot of Socratic questioning. <laughs> yeah. what is, meaning um, what? What is that? Well, so she has an idea of what the answer is, and she'll a- ask me questions to lead me up to that answer. I see. And some of those questions, I started to realize I was doing a lot of blaming hmm. and not doing a lot of looking at what I was doing, which, you know, obviously in a crisis is a lot easier to do, to blame the other person or the other party. And I started realizing that, There's a lot of skills that I teach my patients that I guide my patients to use in order to get undepressed and less less anxious that I wasn't using at all. And I know like um, there's something called GRAPES and it's a behavioral activation tool. So it stands for gentle with self, relaxation, accomplishment, pleasure, exercise, and social. And so what we know is people who hit all of those categories every single day, they tend to not be depressed. And I wasn't doing those things, right? It's a lot harder right now in a pandemic, but I wasn't doing most of those, maybe accomplishment. So I decided, okay, let me start there. So I started writing out my grapes every day, giving myself credit for the things that I was doing. And I noticed that I felt I was feeling a little bit better. So the idea is it's sort of an exercise. You kind of take, it's a discipline of reflecting on yourself in the day and and actually writing stuff down in these categories. Yeah. Planning it out, like planning it out for the day ahead Mm -hmm. and then actually going through and doing it. So you start building mastery because, you know, when you're depressed or you're struggling, like we all are this year, you start thinking, I'm not doing anything I feel terrible. No one cares about me. What's the point? Right. And so getting yourself moving and um, being able to hit these things, even when you don't feel like it, you start to feel better about yourself. Yeah. It builds motivation. That sounds like, and actually on the podcast for people listening, that sounds like something that might be helpful to people Mm -hmm. that are listening. And are there other things that were helpful to you or that you think would be helpful to other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cognitive therapy, we deal with thoughts, what we tell ourselves. So I had to really check out my thinking. A lot of my thinking was incredibly angry thoughts Mm -hmm. towards my supervisor and the hospital as a whole, and sometimes even other patients who weren't really taking safety into consideration. So a lot of those thoughts that came up for me were very extreme. And the goal with cognitive therapy is to balance out the thinking. So it's not so extreme or so distorted. Okay. Let's talk about this a little bit. Cause I'm yeah. like, I want to know what you mean. So, cause, and you know, she had said the blame and you're talking about anger now, which everybody has felt during this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. It's, so how do you not feel those things? So you're not saying don't feel those things. What are you saying? No, we have to feel those things. Cause they're, you know, our feelings are automatic. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is some of the thoughts I was having, like, for example, they're doing this on purpose, right? Well, that's not actually a fact, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was kind of taking it as fact. They're doing this on purpose or, or they really don't care about us. Well, that's not necessarily true either. 
they've got different goals. They do have to meet their quotas and their money, but they also got into this field because they do care about us and our patients. So challenging the, the extreme thought so that it's more factual and less rigid or black and white or. So if I'm translating, like for myself, listening to you, it's like, if you, it's okay to have the feeling cause it's a feeling, but mm-hmm. if you start having a thought, that's like a really intense negative thought, let's say, maybe that's a signal that you can unpack that thought a little bit. And, and maybe there's not just one side to it, that there's another yes. side like that. Exactly. In cognitive therapy, we believe that our thoughts feed our emotions and our emotions tell us what to do. So they lead us to our behaviors. So if I can catch the thought and challenge it, my emotions will become less intense and then I'm less likely to act out on them in an effective way. That's really powerful because we think about our feelings as I can't change that. But you're, you're saying in cognitive behavioral therapy, it's, it works the opposite. You can have it, it work can. the opposite, which is if you can work on the thoughts and you can work on the thoughts, that can actually affect it. And has that been your own experience? Absolutely. Yes. I, I love using this therapy because it works for me. <laughs> yeah. This is what I can use. So it's, I do find it very powerful. So much of what you've said has been helpful, but especially I think what you're saying, giving people a picture of it's not an achievable goal to think there's not going to people be people that are suffering, especially now. Mm-hmm. So when you are suffering, how to reach out or be in an environment where that you help somebody reach out and then how to work on things and get help. And you really painted a picture of that. That's very helpful. How are things now? I mean, we see numbers rising again mm-hmm. and how are you doing in terms of your team and, and the cohesion and the, the relationship with leadership? How's it going now? Yeah, so our our team has become pretty cohesive. We're very supportive of each other. The numbers-wise, it is scary. We've had several exposures at the hospital um, within the last week even. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, we have been asking for certain things since we went to telehealth or since this pandemic started, like um, limiting the number of patients in one room and making sure all patients are wearing the proper mask and it's pulled up over their nose, making sure they're screening at the door. Mm-hmm. So we are still battling that. <laughs> We're allowed to pack a lot more patients in one room than we should. There's a lot of patients who don't wear the proper mask or they wear the one with the vent coming out. Mm-hmm. The screening at the door at the hospital is lacking. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it's frustrating, but I'm definitely able to deal with it much differently. And I think my team is as well. We've learned to adapt. So it's not smooth sailing and there's still, you're still working on stuff, but you're there because you want to do the work and Mm -hmm. help people. It's what you're good at. And then the the other folks that the other couple of people that stepped up with you in the crisis, is their experience been similar to yours? Yeah. A couple of them came back. A couple didn't. So the ones who came back, yeah, they've, they've been pretty frustrated too, but they're managing it as best they can. The ones who chose not to come back, I completely support their decision. They were seeing that, you know, the hospital is not going to create an environment where they feel safe and their families feel safe. Mm-hmm. As we're wrapping up, I'm wondering if you, this is a, an imaginary situation, but if a nurse in an ICU across the country got on the phone with you and said, I'm thinking about stepping forward and asking for help, but I never have before. I don't mm-hmm. think it's worth it. I don't know if I should do it. Well, and, and they're having, you know, they really are suffering. What would you say to them? 
Well, I would ask what the hesitancy is. I think there are a lot of fears around going to therapy. What, what does that mean about me? Yep. What would it be like to open up to a stranger? The simple fact is it can't do much harm, mm-hmm. right? So if you do go and speak mm-hmm. to someone, I don't know what the harm would be. But not saying anything, not speaking up, I would imagine you would continue to suffer. Nothing would change. So you don't have much to lose by actually going to therapy. That's a great point. And I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say that. The, the risk of going to therapy is generally low. Pretty the, low, yeah. The risk of not potentially could be huge. Mm-hmm. And I love that you also said you would ask a question. You know, what is the hesitancy? And that that's where it really is so important for people to tune into each other. And, and actually, a lot of people mm-hmm. are, even if they haven't reached out for help in an official way. They're leaning on each other. So Michelle, it's been just such a a pleasure to talk with you. And I've learned so much talking with you. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you would want to bring up? I don't think so. I just have so much respect for every healthcare provider who's continuing to work during this time. And I think my situation is so different. So I really can't even imagine what it's like working in a COVID unit and treating patients in a hospital setting like that. So I really just encourage anybody out there who's listening to speak up and get help or trying to get the support that they really deserve. I'm really glad you said that. And I want to join with you in that. Even as we're sitting here talking about this, there is not just one, dozens, if not hundreds right now, healthcare workers on the front lines, treating somebody with active COVID right now. You know? right. So I'm, right. I'm really glad. That's a wonderful way to end our discussion, to call that to mind. And, and yeah. it's a lovely way to uh, finish our time. But yeah. again, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. And I know that it's going to have a positive effect. Thank you so much for having me. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic with Dr. John Santo Pietro. Executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall. Theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP 
to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Qual Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512